The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Babylon, 
Jerusalem laid flat, the temple destroyed, the people of God removed from the promised land of God. They're in a place of being slaves once again, just as they were back in Egypt in the very beginning, wondering what God is doing. And Isaiah is saying, God did this because of your sin, to turn your hardened heart back to himself. And if you've noticed, as we've worked our way through 59 chapters of the book of Isaiah, God has promised there will be one, a redeemer who is to come, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, the servant of the Lord who will not only suffer for his people to redeem them, but will also be one who will conquer and rule and reign and establish a true justice for his people. Those, those promises and those little portraits of restoration have been sprinkled throughout the entire book of Isaiah. And now in Isaiah 60, we come to an entire chapter devoted to what that renewed and restored Zion is going to look like. What I want us to do this evening is walk through the passage and let the Word of God speak for itself. And then I, I want us to think a little deeply about when and where and how is this chapter going to be fulfilled. And then we'll close by thinking about how does that apply to you and me tonight? Like, what does that mean if God's Word is written for our admonition, even the Old Testament written for our instruction, our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come? Uh, what, what does that mean for you and me living tonight as believers uh, on this side of the cross looking forward to all that is to come? So let's walk through Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise! Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. This is a promise of the, the light, the knowledge, the revelation of God coming for His people on the behalf of His people, shining even in the midst of darkness, as we looked at in Isaiah uh, I believe it's chapter 9 even, where, where he, there's that prophecy that even Jesus fulfills in a large way in His first coming, where the light comes into the darkness. The glory of God is going to be manifested through His people. Verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light. That this great work of redemption and this great restoration of Zion will not be something that is only for Israel, but through all of this, all the Gentiles will see and will actually come to this light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. And your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant. And your heart shall swell with joy. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Now remember, the audience, original audience that Isaiah has in mind here are those Israelites, those Jews that are now slaves in a Gentile land. They're servants of the Babylonians having been conquered by that great army with no hope of salvation in and of themselves. And God says to them, the wealth of the Gentiles will come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian. Here's another one. Raise your hand if you know what a dromedary is. 
I have to, I cannot put my hand up because I did not know it until I had to look it up. It's that, that little one hump camel. It's a camel. So it's a certain type of camel from Midian, bringing the people of Midian and of Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. These are all foreign Gentile lands, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. That there will be Gentiles who are not the people of God who will be singing the praises of the Lord Almighty. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance upon my altar. And I will glorify the house of my glory. That phrase just stood out to me. If you highlight or underline in your Bible, that's one worth highlighting and underlining. God says, I will glorify the house of my glory. Even as his temple was laid flat, even as his people were in bondage in a Gentile nation, with all the Babylonians shouting and proclaiming the gods of Babylon are greater than the gods of Israel, than the God of Israel. God says, I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roost? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me. It's a Gentile land, and the ships of Tarshish will come to me. That's one of the furthest extent in the known world in that day and age of Gentile people will come come to him to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls. So, so not only do they come to this Zion, but they're actually a part of building this Zion. And their king shall minister to you for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You shall drink of the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breasts of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteous. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, 
and your glory or your, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also, your people shall be righteous; they shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. A very descriptive picture, not just promise, but description of Zion restored, of Zion renewed. I am glad I have had two weeks to study this passage, but really I could have been given a lifetime to study this passage, and I still struggle. I struggle because I question and ask where, when, how is this fulfilled? And I read great preachers of the day and scholars, biblical scholars of the day, and then I read great uh, theologians of eras in the past, and and I find a consensus in different circles, but not a consensus in a variety of circles, and especially a variety of history, going back to different eras within church history, of what views were held as to where this passage is completely fulfilled. I want to lead you on a journey of my struggle, which might lose some of you. Just hang in there, and we'll close with some good applications. Some of you, this might be like your cup of tea, and you're really interested in this sort of thing. What we're dealing with and how we bring this passage to a a, a strict fulfillment would be how do we fit the whole redemptive plan of God together? How do we fit our whole Bible together from Genesis to Revelation in, in a large Some ways in which we do that are defined by some of those terminologies I gave out a moment ago that some of you may or may not be familiar with. And so there's a lot that goes into saying... This is exactly where and how God will renew Zion in the way that it's speaking of here. I want to give to you just three options. I tried to boil this down into its simplest form to help us, help me communicate it, hopefully help you track with me and follow with me as we think through this passage. One, in interpreting it, and then two, in applying it. So first is the interpretation of it. When There's some simple things that we know is that This is a promise of God describing when He takes Zion and He restores it. The people of of Israel even being given this promise in the land of Babylon that there is coming a day that God is going to accomplish all of these things for their sake. Really for His name's sake. For His glory to be manifested through them. It goes all the way back even to the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants that through Abraham would come a blessing to all the nations of the earth. that, That God would work through this people to bring about a manifestation of his, of his glory, even a kingdom that would come. Three possible interpretations of when this is happening, when this will be fulfilled. One would be in the fulfillment in Christ, in the church. A second option would be a fulfillment in the millennial kingdom that, well, I got that listed as number three, but the millennial kingdom, a literal thousand-year period in which Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth after His second coming, immediately following His second coming, His return. And then a third option would be a fulfillment in the new Jerusalem that is eternal. 
Revelation 21, the city of God, the new Jerusalem that uh, descends from the heavens on this, this new creation. Uh, there are even today many who apply this in each of those three categories. What I'm going to propose to you tonight is that it's true for all three, and I sort of take a hybrid view. That we find a grand fulfillment in Christ and in the church. We find in the millennial kingdom an earthly manifestation of what is what is brought to us in the glory of Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected, and it is fulfilled primarily through his old covenant people, ethnic Israel. And all of it leads us to the very end, which is the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And we'll see John in Revelation 21 really quotes. It's a definite allusion to this, this chapter, to there being no moon and there being no, no sun and the glory of God being the light and the kings that come. All of that is alluded to very, very closely in Revelation 21, where it speaks of the new Jerusalem. And so there are some who say it can only be one, and they choose one at the, against the others. And I'm kind of in a weird place of saying, I, I see the truth in all, and I don't see the need to say it's only one. I think it's God working it in, in a multiple fulfillment by which it all points to Christ and to give glory to Christ, that His glory may be known and His glory may be seen. And so i got about 20 minutes to convince you of that. Yay! First, the fulfillment in Christ in the church. If you read Charles Spurgeon and the messages that he preaches from this chapter, he sees this speaking of the church, of the church being the place where the Gentiles have been grafted in as the people of God, where the church is the place that Israel is receiving the glory rightly due to God's name is, is the, the, to understand the fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the true and better Israel, that He is what Israel failed to be. All of Isaiah has pointed us to that, that the, the Christ comes to be and to do the, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, what the Israelites failed to be. They were to be the salt of the earth. They were to be a light that was on a hill. They were to draw the nations of the earth, the Gentile nations, to see who God is, to see the love of God, to see the, the magnificence of God, the glory of God as it's defined here. And yet they and their rebellion became just like the pagan nations that they were supposed to be a light to. And Jesus, Isaiah has said it many a times, the suffering servant of the Lord will come to bear their iniquity. Not only their iniquity, but the iniquity come to find out of all the people of the earth that he becomes the Savior of Israel, but also the Savior of all the peoples of the earth. He, he, is, the, the, he is what Israel failed to be, just as he is what you and I failed to be in our lives, living a righteous life before God. And you, you read this and you think about that fulfillment of Jesus being the light that's come unto the world, the light that's come unto the Gentiles. And you read the Gospels and you find even in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in the Gospel of John with the Samaritan woman and, and the, the woman at the well and, and others, the centurion, that, that Jesus is the one who is reaching out to the Gentiles to bring the Gentiles into the fold, so to speak. That He is uh, Zion as... We read in Hebrews 12 and 22, 
We're in Hebrews 12:22, a good verse to write down. It says, We have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to the uh, God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. That we haven't come to Mount Sinai, he says there, we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, through Christ, through the blood offered through Jesus. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, that we come to him as living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And then you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable unto God through Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. That Christ is the chief cornerstone of Zion. That no matter how we apply this passage, we must realize, no matter how we interpret even the fulfillment of this passage, we must realize that even in the millennial kingdom, it ultimately points us to Christ, to the king of the millennial kingdom, to the one who is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, to the the one who is the, the lamb of God who atones for the sins of his people, Israel and Gentiles, and, and in in the biggest fulfillment of this, even though I would draw as we'll do it in my third point, a direct line to the millennial, millennial kingdom. We must realize even that is a flashback to Calvary, to the covenantal promises of God being fulfilled through the person and work of the suffering servant of the Lord, Jesus. It is not meant to bring glory to Israel. It is meant for, in the glorifying of Israel, to draw glory to the God of Israel, to the Christ. And hear me, just like just like right now we look back to the Gospels, we look back to the cross. Understand in your Bibles, the cross is the cornerstone of, of the entirety of the, not only Scripture, but of God's redemptive plan for humanity. Okay, so from the very fall, everything is looking forward to Jesus Christ dying upon a cross for the sins of the world. The, the Gospels are that cornerstone at the top of the arch. Jesus and the cross is there Everything before is leading up to it. Everything is foreshadowing it. All the sacrifices that were initiated under the law, all of that is pointing forward to Christ. Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. And then once that moment came, realize everything this side of the cross and everything that will come in the future, even those end-time events in a millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth, you realize all of that now is pointing us back to that moment when Jesus Christ died for our sins and accomplished our redemption, accomplished the means of our restoration. And so everything ultimately points to Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected for our redemption, for our salvation. Old Testament pointing forward to it, the the Gospels being that center of our Bible upon which everything uh, is writing from the past moving forward to it and the future looking back to it. That, that is the epicenter of it all. That is what all eternity will be lived in the light of, the glory of the crucified Son of God, the, the one who will bear the only wounds in heaven as an eternal proclamation, reminder to us 
of His redemption, of His love, of His grace, of His mercy, the songs that we will sing for all eternity that the angels cannot, those songs of redemption, of being forgiven, of, of knowing what it is to have a God who loved us so much He gave His Son to redeem us. There is undoubtedly a fulfillment in these promises and even in this description that occurs within Christ, within He and His death, burial, and resurrection, initiating this kingdom, initiating this new covenant, initiating the church even as we are a part in the here and now. To read the words of R.C. Sproul, he would be a modern-day guy that would hold only to this view. R.C. Sproul, all the reformers, go back to Augustine really in the 4th century, from the 4th century onward to about the 19th century. This was the predominantly held view within the church. R.C. Sproul says, From the very beginning, the Lord has been concerned for the nations, placing Israel in the middle of them as a witness to His grace and goodness. The family of Israel, the seed of Abraham, was never to be the only object of God's love. Rather, it would be through Abraham that his his descendants that a divine blessing would be brought to the whole world. That's Genesis 12, 1-3. As a whole, Israel did not fulfill its calling under the Old Covenant to be an agent of blessing for the Gentiles. Instead of shining as lights in the world, thus drawing all nations to the true God, Israel became as dark as the pagans around them. And the Lord used these pagans as instruments to discipline His people. Not only in the Babylonian captivity, but all through the book of Judges, for instance, and throughout their history. God would let Gentile nations come in and subdue His people, and they'd repent and they'd turn, and then He would deliver them. But their covenant Lord did not abandon His purpose to set Israel above the nations as a shining city on a hill. Following discipline, Israel was promised a glorious restoration as indicated in this passage in Isaiah chapter 60. What is remarkable about Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 60, verses 10 through 14, is that the nations are included in this restoration. These verses describe the rebuilding of the earthly city of Jerusalem and the era of restoration, the age of the new covenant. Yet it is difficult to know how we are to interpret the imagery. The prophets often use figurative language, relying on images familiar to them in order to describe future realities revealed by God. Since Jerusalem is used elsewhere in Scripture as a metaphor for the people of God, we can at least say that while Isaiah's description in Isaiah 60:10 through 14 may include a literal rebuilding of the city of David, it also points to something far greater. And so he does leave it open to say maybe there is a millennial kingdom. Maybe Jesus is coming back to uh, have a literal earthly reign of a thousand years. I believe he is. I would be a premillennialist. R.C. Sproul would be an amillennialist. He does not. He says that something Isaiah foresaw was the building of Christ's church as a kingdom, including Jew and Gentile. The people of other nations and their rulers come into the holy city to rebuild Jerusalem and to minister it. But we are not to think of it as some kind of menial service. Good citizenship includes appropriate service to a person's home country, and this is precisely the service rendered in this passage. He goes on, I'm not going to read it all, but he speaks of this being the restored kingdom of the people who bow down to the Davidic king as their sovereign, to the Christ, to Jesus. There is a sense in which, and a great sense in which, this passage points to Jew and Gentile both alike coming together as the people of God in what we call the church. How do I tie all this together? 
let's look to the fulfillment in the eternal New Jerusalem. Revelation 21. This won't take long. Why would I draw this chapter to Revelation 21? Revelation 21, verses 24 through 27. Go back to 22. This is the glory of the new Jerusalem. The eternal new earth, new heaven, new Jerusalem descends in the beginning of chapter 21. He describes it, but then he says in verse um, 23, it says, The city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no light there, no night there, rather. It's a direct, almost a direct quotation. It's a loose quotation. It's an allusion to everything Isaiah has written in Isaiah 60. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so there are many who have seen this chapter, Isaiah 60, is pointing to an ultimate fulfillment again in the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, where God will eternally make Zion new and restored, and where Jew and Gentile will be one. And the Jew and Gentile is the people of God, Revelation 21. A third fulfillment, and really I think the most direct fulfillment, is found in the Millennial Kingdom. Revelation chapter 20. So many of you are bugging me and asking me, are we ever going to walk through Revelation? And I've told you, we never, we can't walk through Revelation until we walk through Isaiah and until we walk through Daniel, especially Daniel 9, uh, until we walk through Ezekiel 40 through 48, until I can rightly and you can rightly understand and interpret and at least have in our minds passages like Isaiah chapter 60. We will never never understand the book of Revelation. And I think that's part of the problem that so many preachers who preach Revelation have is they preach Revelation and, and they, don't, they don't even know their Old Testament well enough to rightly handle. Usually they just print something and copy it from somebody and, and, and it, it becomes a mess and it gives us all sorts of confusing ideas. The other problem is it is confusing. Like you read the book of Revelation and you go, what in the world is he talking about? How are we ever to make sense of it all? We will never make sense of any of it if we don't understand or at least have in our minds verses, chapters such as Isaiah 60 when we read of these end-time events, such as Revelation chapter 20, where it speaks of a literal, in my understanding, a literal 1,000-year period in which Christ will rule and reign over those that make it through the tribulation period. All believers by this point, those who aren't, have been judged, and, and, and there's an earthly people and there's an earthly rule and reign whereby Jesus rules with a rod of iron on this earth. It is a bit strange, honestly, as we think about this and all that might unfold in the end times when Jesus returns, even with the rapture, tribulation, and then this happening, a millennial kingdom with his return. Um, but, but as I have put the scriptures together and as I study through it afresh and anew, I will re-examine it all together again, but I, I see this being an earthly 1,000-year period, I'll let you read Revelation 20 at a later time, is an earthly reign in which Jesus establishes really a fulfillment of many Old Covenant promises to His ethnic people, Israel. And He, he fulfills it all pointing to 
the, the first coming. Don't, don't lose this fact in it. All pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection. He being the one who bears the sins of his people. And this is not a separate covenant. It's all under the new covenant. It's, it's, it's all under the grace of God through the Redeemer, through the suffering servant of God, dying upon a cross for the sins of His people. But there is a distinction between ethnic Israel and between the church. The church has been grafted in. Gentile has come in. But read Romans 11. There, there will be in the fullness of the Gentiles when that has come a return, I believe, to a concentration of God's work upon ethnic Israel. And there will be through the tribulation much that goes on that we'll talk about when we get to it. And there will be a literal 1,000 year time frame where I believe this chapter in its fullness, a direct fulfillment, will come to pass. That God will make of His people this great of a nation where the nations will come to Jerusalem, to Zion, to worship the one true living God. And Jesus will rule with that rod of iron for that 1,000 year period. I don't want to dive in much further than that because we don't have a lot of time, but that is the, the direction I will be navigating as we walk through, especially as we get to Daniel and the 70 weeks of Daniel, and we get to Ezekiel, again, chapter 40 through 48. Understand even this, I'll mention this in passing too, that when it talks about an altar and a sacrifice on the altar being accepted, there's some that question, is there really going to be an offering of sacrifices again? And I would say if there are, realize it will be as if, as the Lord's Supper is to us, it will be in remembrance of the great sacrifice that was made, just as the sacrifices before the cross pointed forward to what Jesus would accomplish. If in that millennial kingdom there are sacrifices being offered once again, it will not be to atone for the sins of the people for that temporary time frame. It will all be just as we say, this is His blood shed, the new covenant, this is His body broken, and it will all be in remembrance pointing back to the atoning work of Christ at Calvary. I don't know where I'm at on all of that, and we'll have to answer that when we get to Ezekiel 40 through 48 primarily. And some of you are thinking, what am I getting into? This is what you're getting into when you say, hey, preacher, you need to preach the book of Revelation. So bear with me as we walk through some of these things that we must put in place. If we're going to understand all the references, all the imagery, all the pictures that John, in his apocalyptic literature, the way that he writes, that he points us to, um, we, we will never understand it rightly until we get some grasp on these Old Testament prophets. Alright, so maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, what in the world have I come to tonight? Here's where I get to preach for five minutes and then let you go. Application. I normally just preach application and give you some good applicational points. What does this mean? What does this mean for you and me tonight as we think practically to your living and to my living? As we put it in its context, in its original context, and consider once again, these were the people of God. Yes, under the judgment of God, but you know there were kids born there in Babylon who didn't have anything at all to do with the past generation and what occurred there in, in Jerusalem and in, in Judah. There were, there were younger folks that, that would come on the scene that they're born in Babylon, they're raised in Babylon, and they're wondering, why has the God of, 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 of our forefathers failed us? Where is He in the midst of my life, in the circumstances of my life? I'm, I'm living a life of pain and suffering, and, and God seems far away and removed, and, and I've heard of worshiping Him, and even a sacrifice that's to be made in the temple, and, and you think about the hardship of their life. 
and the, the doubting and even in their, their thinking of the goodness and of the love of God, this word comes to them and it is a promise of a future restoration. And there are some truths that apply here to them that apply to us even today as we think about our life being lived and the uncertainty of situations that surround us under the sovereign hand of God, but at the same time leading us to question and ponder and wonder, God, why? What are you doing? Where are you in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my confusion, in the midst of my sorrow? Just three truths to mention to you quickly. One, realize God's promises are true and they will be fulfilled. God is reminding His people here, I have a plan that I am working, even in your suffering, even in the gracious judgment I'm pouring out, that I am accomplishing my purposes, and I am working a greater glory in the end. There will be a restoration. There will be a Zion that is to come that will be glorious. You just got to trust me. You need to cling to the promises of God, no matter your circumstances. The second truth, based on that truth, is that our hope is not in the here and now, but is in what is to come. That the people of Israel were not to look at their current situation and base the the joy of their life on their current situation, on what they were walking through. Because if they looked around in their life at that time, they could demise that, that God is far off and either failed them or unconcerned about them. That God had forsaken them or that God was weak weak and couldn't accomplish deliverance and salvation for them. And the gods of Babylon were greater. That's what they were, were tempted to believe. And God is telling them and reminding them Don't base your opinion on me upon the circumstances of your life because I am a God that's greater than that. I'm greater than the present and there is a future that is coming where your hope is to reside, where your focus is to be, that we are to set our affection on things above and not on things of the earth, that we are to live for the city of God that is to come. Third truth, we are to shine. Verse 1, arise shine. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. We are to shine, to see and to live in light of that Zion that is to come, longing for the city of God. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what suffering it is you're walking through, no matter what sorrow it is that is is on your heart, it's, it's sorrowful, it's painful, there, there is a hope in the city of God that is to come Not not only that millennial kingdom, but even more so what that millennial kingdom leads us to, which is that New Jerusalem John writes of, that that is that shining city of our hope. To read Revelation 21, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and pain and sorrow will be done away with, and sin done away with, the former things having been done away with, that, that Jesus makes all things new, that that day is coming. And that day ought to ought to invigorate us, ought to to encourage us, ought to give us a perseverance, even in the midst of Babylon, even in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, even in the midst of a country that is drifting further and further away from God and the morality shift that's going on and everything that's happening. We don't get, woe is me, and doom and despair. We understand there's a sovereign God over this whole thing, and He will build a Zion. He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And no matter what individual sufferings go on in your life, 
to have all the promises of God in the New Testament even, where He's working the eternal weight of glory, even in our sorrows, that we, we through much tribulation, much in, must enter the kingdom of God. There's things that grieve our hearts because they're bad, and they're sinful, and they're hurtful, and they're, they're a product of living in a fallen world. And it's dangerous in America and the comfort we enjoy and in the prosperity gospel that's so often preached to think we should have a happy, healthy, and wealthy life in here and now. And the Bible constantly points us not to that. It points us to the city of God that is to come, to Zion, to a future Zion. And that's where our hope rests. That's where eternal healing will come. That's where all things will be made new. That is where the ash will truly become beautiful then and there and that's what we long for that is what we live for i think of second corinthians 4 and verse 6 as I, I think about the light of zion the light even of this passage that comes into darkness it says for it is the god who commanded light to shine out of darkness who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ this passage was meant to inspire hope and the people of God in a season of great trial and burden and sorrow and difficulty. And the application to us tonight even is the same. That in the midst of our trial and burden and sorrow and difficulty, we have the hope of Zion. That there is a city that God has prepared for those who believe in Him. And He's prepared a place. He will surely come again to get us. Cling to that in the midst of your trial. Cling to that. And let it lead you to shine even in the midst of the trial. Because your hope is in Christ and in the redemption and in the eternal Zion that is to come. As we close, not only do I begin a little differently tonight, I want to close a little differently tonight. I want to pray and I want us for our invitation time to listen to the words of this song that I think so beautifully and even mysteriously points us to the longing for the Zion that is to come through the new Jerusalem even that is to come, that eternal state even that this ultimately points us to. Uh, the words are going to be on the, the video that will be played so you can read the words. And I want you to truly think about the words of this song. And I pray it's an encouragement to your heart and an encouragement to your soul, especially if tonight you're in a season of hardship. You're in a time frame where you are wondering where is God and where is healing and where is hope in the midst of what you're walking go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You. I pray You work through Your Word. Lord, as we think about the complications of how we rightly interpret this passage, give us wisdom. Your Spirit guide and direct us even as we dive into some deeper, more difficult areas of Your Word. Lord, more than all, may we not get lost in an intellectual pursuit. May we take the application of Your Word. May it, may it comfort us. May it encourage us. May it even rebuke and correct us where we've lost hope, where we've lost joy because our eyes are on the here and now. Give us that hope of Zion, that hope of the city of God that you have prepared for all those who love you. Lord, work, I pray, comfort, strengthen, encourage where that is needed. I ask it in Jesus' precious name.